This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Uh, I'm going to offer some thoughts about beauty that is uh, that are are based in uh, a set of pa short passages that I want to read and then comment on. I'll begin with a passage from Augustine uh, from the Confessions, and then move into some St. Thomas, and then end with uh, a bit of reflection from uh, from St. Uh, from uh, C.S. Lewis. So let me begin with this wonderful passage from. Uh, from St. Augustine's Confessions from Book 10, where uh, it's a, the, the opening line is, is quite well known uh, in that work. Late have I loved thee, O beauty, so ancient and so new. Late have I loved thee. For behold, thou were within me and I outside. And I sought thee outside and in my unloveliness fell upon those lovely things that thou hast made. Thou were with me, and I was not with thee. I was kept from thee by those things. Yet, had they not been in thee, they would not have been at all. Thou did call and cry to me and break open my deafness. And thou did send forth thy beams and shine upon me and chase away my blindness. Thou did breathe fragrance, fragrance upon me, and I drew in my breath, and I do pant for thee. I tasted thee, and now hunger and thirst for thee. Thou did touch me, and I have burned for thy peace. Really beautiful passage about the way in which God calls to us through the beautiful things of the world, O beauty so ancient and so new. For Augustine, it is beauty that leads him to God, also the true and the good. But God calls to us through the beautiful things of this world. And if we follow out the signs that are present everywhere around us, those signs, those beautiful things that are but echoes and images of the transcendent beauty will lead us to God. But of course, for Augustine and for all of us, the beautiful things of this world can also be traps. They can lead us astray from God if we seek delight in them, if we seek to rest in them. As Augustine says in the very opening of the Confessions, our heart is restless until it rests in thee. The natural trajectory, the natural propensity of human desire is to be drawn out of itself toward beautiful things in the world and in those and through those things to seek an infinite beauty that satisfies all our desire for truth and goodness and beauty. What Augustine gives us here in this passage is uh, a sense of the way in which our experience of beauty can go in two directions. One way to contrast those two directions is to say that the beautiful things of this world can operate as idols 
or as sorts of icons. What do I mean about the difference? How would we express the difference between an idol and an icon? I think there are uh, there are a couple of uh, ways of contrasting this. One is to say that an idol is something that is proportionate to the expectation of desire that we bring to our encounter with it. That is to say, with an idol, I'm a kind of consumer of the objects of beauty. I know what I want, and I go in search of it. And if I find it, I take enjoyment in it. But it doesn't exceed my desire, or at least my, my relationship to it doesn't allow it to exceed or transform my desire. Another way to put this is to say that with an idol, the viewer controls the experience. So one of the ways to, especially to think about uh, an idolatrous relation to images is the way in which we're tempted to this all the time in the way in which we use images and particularly images provided to us through technology, through the various screens and images that we encounter. Think about how we operate on our laptops, on our iPhones, on our iPads, or whatever screen it might be that we spend so much of our time on. We can, we are in absolute control of the images that we see, how they're presented to us, how long we interact with them, and what sort of response we get from them. This is also true of information that we get on the internet and through social media. And we know that on social media, the algorithms are set up to feed us more of what gets us most worked up. So that the kind of ideological insanity that we seem especially prone to in our contemporary world, social media feeds that. It feeds it really in two ways. One is through uh, the algorithms that if we're getting worked up about something politically or culturally, social media will feed us and suggest to us more things along those lines to keep us worked up, to keep us enraged and engaged. It also feeds us in the sense that it, it gives us the illusion of, uh, of judgment over everything that we encounter. And the judgments we make often on social media are increasingly judgments where our default position is that anyone who disagrees with us is both stupid and evil. So you can go on Twitter right now. Thankfully, not that much on the Thomistic Institute Twitter or other Twitter pages like that. But it, but most Twitter pages, if the general public is on there, no matter what the first tweet is about, within four or five subtweets, people are going to be arguing about whatever the political issue is of the moment that they're enraged about. And they're going to be treating other people as if they're both stupid and evil. Why is this? It's because we are very easily inclined toward a very detached, uh, judgmental uh, stance when we're on social media and when we're on the internet where we aren't in control of everything. And so we can control who we interact with and who we don't. We can control the images that we see. We see, in a sense, only what we already know and want in an idolatrous relationship to an object of beauty. 
Matt Crawford, who's a scholar at the University of Virginia uh, by night and by day is a motorcycle repair guy in Richmond, Virginia, uh, wrote a famous uh, article some years ago now called Shop Class as Soulcraft that then became a book that he wrote. In, in later work, Crawford has talked about uh, the kind of universe that social media and interaction with screens inclines us to believe in. He has this great phrase that he uses, it inclines us to conceive of the universe as frictionless. What does he mean by frictionless? It's a wonderful word that he uses. He means that when we're on screens, we uh, can interact with the world in a way that makes it seem as if the external world is plastic to our desires. So if we don't like something, we get rid of it, right? We simply delete it or we move on. It gives us the sense that the world could be a place where external things and other people don't push back against our will. Right? And this is dangerous, especially for young people who need to be formed. He actually, you, Crawford makes good use of Freud, whom I'm generally not a big fan of, but he makes good use of Freud's distinction between the pleasure principle and the reality principle. And the pleasure principle, Freud says, is what we're dominated by in our infancy. And becoming an adult is a matter of accommodating our desire for pleasure to the reality principle, to the fact that the world and other people, states of affairs push back against our will. And becoming an adult is at least in part learning how to navigate reality. It's learning about the fact that the world is not plastic to my desires or elastic to my desires in the way my life on uh, social media and a screen might be. Crawford doesn't say this, but that's the role of an idol, right? The role of an idol is to be shaped according to my wishes and desires. An icon, by contrast, is something that when we encounter it, it challenges us. It suggests ways in which our desires might be better ordered. In a true icon, where we're looking at an image of Christ or of the Trinity or of the saints, the, the person depicted or persons depicted look at us even as we look at the image. So in an icon, there's the suggestion that our desires need to be transformed. And if we follow out through meditation, the logic and beauty of the icon, our desires can be led to be transformed so that we develop virtues, particularly virtues of wonder, receptivity, gratitude, and sacrifice. But also in a true icon, we are seen as much as or more than we see. Right? In an idol, we simply see without being seen. In the encounter with an icon, we are seen and are forced to encounter a gaze of another who looks at us and invites us into a deeper personal relationship with God in his holiness. An icon calls us. It doesn't simply act as an inert object that we manipulate as we please. In Augustine's logic of desire, he learned to move from an encounter with the world, not as an idol that he could manipulate, 
but as signs or icons of the divine. He recognized that in all the beautiful things around him, all of his loves, that God was calling to him and calling him home. The wonderful brief image that St. Thomas gives us concerning the beautiful, and I would say that what is truly beautiful operates more like an icon than an idol, even if the beautiful object we're encountering or beautiful scene in nature is not explicitly religious. It offers us an opportunity to transform our desire, to call us out of ourselves into a deeper penetration and love of what is true and good. Thomas says very briefly that the beautiful is that which pleases when seen. So I want to say something very briefly now about the relationship between beauty, truth, and goodness, and then talk about the beautiful way in which for St. Thomas, beauty figures in the life of the pursuit of truth and goodness. So the true consists in a conformity of our intellects to what is, to reality, in superficial ways of conforming to facts, information that we gather, and in deeper ways in conforming our thought and living to what is actually objectively real. We need to have, if we're pursuing the true, we need to have a passion for getting at the truth. We need to have a passion for accuracy, for getting things right. This, by the way, is one of the correctives to the vices that we're engaged in of what we might call not rational agreement or disagreement in our culture today, but irrational disagreement and angry denunciation. If we have a passion for the truth, we're going to want to weigh each argument. It doesn't mean that we're not going to disagree sometimes vehemently with others. But what we're going to do first is we're going to have a passion for accuracy, for getting things right. And we hope through displaying that passion for accuracy, which admits when we haven't gotten things right, because after all, if we don't admit when we've gotten things wrong or what we don't understand, we'll never make progress in the intellectual life. But in so doing, we will pull some of the people closer to the truth because they will see a rare witness in our time, which is individuals who are actually committed to the truth, not because it's mine, but because it's true. It's not my truth my philosophical truth, my theological truth. It's simply the truth. And if I exhibit a passion not for defending what is mine, but for getting at the truth, I can win not everyone. I can win some people over to a pursuit of the truth. The good refers to the will's natural longing for what fulfills its desire. The good is that which all desire, as Aristotle says, and Aquinas follows him in that. The beautiful is that which pleases when seen. Aquinas says that at one point that the good and the beautiful agree in notion or definition, but have a different reference to the faculties of the soul. So one way to say, to talk about the beautiful is that it's an encounter of something that is proportionate, as Aquinas said, that exhibits uh, consonance and harmony, 
and also exhibits a radiance of color or something that that overwhelms our senses or our intellect with its uh, with its harmony, with its beauty. And different from the good, the beautiful refers to the intellect. It's what pleases when seen. Interestingly, that means that the beautiful is something more like contemplation than it is like practical wisdom or action. Because in the beautiful, we rest in that which pleases us when we see it. And contemplation is a matter of resting in the truth. Contemplation, like beauty, begins in wonder and ends in a kind of rest, a satisfaction of desire. So when we encounter the beautiful for St. Thomas, for Aristotle, for Augustine, for all the great thinkers in our tradition, when we encounter the beautiful, we're having an experience of something that is desirable for its own sake. One way to think about the ethical life for Aristotle and for St. Thomas is to say, first of all, that the ethical life is coextensive with human life. It's not about simply these isolated moments when we have moral dilemmas. It's about the whole of human life. And it's about human happiness, right? But human happiness, we need to be clear for these thinkers, is not simply a passive state. Happiness is in activity. So if we think about in our lives the activities that we enjoy for their own sake, they can contribute to other things, but the activities that we enjoy for their own sake, that is the activities we would engage in even if no other good came out of them. Aquinas thinks that the encounter with the beautiful is one of those activities, as is friendship, as are other types of virtue, as is contemplation of the truth and ultimately of God. The encounter with the beautiful reminds us that there are things that we don't simply instrumentalize for other goods, that there are encounters in the world with people, with artworks, with nature that are desirable for their own sake. St. Thomas says, interestingly, toward the end of the second part of his great Summa, at the beginning, he talks about intellectual contemplation of God as the ultimate end. This is what we're made for. And that picture at the beginning of the second part of the Summa can seem isolated. It's as if you have an isolated intellect contemplating an isolated God. But it's a very incomplete picture, true as it is. We get a much fuller picture toward the end of the second part of the Summa when Aquinas asks whether contemplation or action is the best life or whether some life that includes contemplation and action is the best life. And of course, as a Dominican, you know that he's going to defend the mixed life, a life where contemplation overflows into action. In the famous phrase uh, of the Dominicans and of St. Thomas, contemplata aliis trotere, right? To hand on to others things contemplated. Uh, in this, these beautiful passages in in the second part of the second part, question 180, Thomas says, and he quotes Gregory the Great, wherefore Gregory makes the contemplative life to consist in the love of God. Inasmuch through loving God, we are aflame to gaze on his beauty. 
And since everyone delights when he obtains what he loves, it follows that the contemplative life terminates in delight, which is also what the life of the pursuit of beauty terminates in, right? Through loving God, we are aflame to gaze on his beauty. And he says then about the active life that there are twofold, the, the active life that prepares us for contemplation, but then there's the active life that proceeds from the fullness of contemplation, where encountering the beauty and love of God overflows so that we want to share this with others, such as teaching and preaching. And Gregory quotes again, they shall publish the memory of thy sweetness. What a wonderful way of saying this, right? Those who contemplate God shall publish the memory of, of his sweetness, right? This experience of the beauty, the sweetness, the delight of God, we publish. And we perfect men returning from contemplation to others. And this work is more excellent than simple contemplation. This notion of an experience of an excess of beauty that overflows into preaching and teaching and service. This, by the way, just a footnote here, this, by the way, mirrors, in a sense, uh, the teaching of Plato and Socrates uh, in, um, in many of the great dialogues where, uh, where the encounter with beauty overflows into giving of speeches and into encounters with others, especially in the symposium. So here we have clearly not an idolatrous encounter with the beautiful objects, but an iconic encounter that transforms our desire, that increases our desire, right? Augustine is saying at the very beginning of the confessions, open my heart, Lord, right? Expand it so that it can receive more of you. Open, he says, the ears of my heart, so that I can hear you better. This experience of God as beautiful expands our heart, our souls, makes us more receptive to the truth and goodness of God. And also, as it fills us, we experience the superabundance of God's beauty, and that overflows into our encounter with others. Just a wonderful way of thinking about the way in which the life of contemplation, whether that is philosophical or theological, and the life of prayer and the sacraments is, these are certainly ends in themselves, but they also, the surplus of beauty there overflows into our daily lives so that we serve others, uh, especially through preaching and teaching. One of the marks of the beautiful is that an encounter with the beautiful sparks wonder. And this, even in heaven, will not go away, the sense of mystery of the divine. But here and now, wonder marks, as Joseph Pieper and Tolkien and others teach us, wonder marks our status in the middle of things, in Middle Earth, as Tolkien puts it, right? Wonder is an openness. Wonder is an indication that we're on the way, that we're pilgrims or wayfarers, right? Notice that the disposition of wonder 
is the opposite of the disposition of control that I desire in an encounter with an idol, right? Wonder places me in a precarious situation in one sense, in that I realize that I don't know something, that I'm not in control, that there are things here that transcend my ability to fathom and articulate them. Whereas my experience of the idol is an inert object that I control and understand and manipulate fully. In this experience of beauty, my wonder is increased. And I recognize in my humanity that I am, as Plato again puts it in the symposium, the offspring of poverty and plenty. That human nature is this mixture of enormous capacity, but also emptiness, also a neediness, a hole in our soul that needs to be filled by a beautiful, infinite object. I want to end by just saying a little bit about two different ways of thinking about the beautiful things that we encounter in our experience. And I want to say something about, uh, and this is where I'm leading up to a quotation from C.S. Lewis that I think is really important. Uh, as I look at our wider culture, I've, I've reviewed movies for about a decade and, and still do a lot of work on, um, on film and television. The, it seems to me that the, the dominant positive narrative we have in our culture is typically what I would call a romantic. And I don't mean by that a rom-com. I mean romantic in the 19th century sense coming out of Wordsworth and Keats and other great uh, English poets, which suggests that uh, we were innocent and harmonious as children, harmonious with ourselves, with nature, with others. And that as we grow up, particularly through the intervention of civilization, we become alienated from ourselves, from nature, and from others. This valorizing or elevating of innocent childhood is part of lots of Hollywood movies from E.T. to Avatar. Almost every Spielberg movie has this as its model, the idea of innocent children and alienated adults. Wordsworth writes beautiful poetry about the possibility of returning through memory to this connection we once had to nature. There's something right about this view. It's there in, it's at the root of this nostalgic feeling that we all have from time to time. And some people of a particularly romantic disposition are taken by this habitually. The sense that, as Wordsworth puts it, there hath passed away a glory from this earth. And the glory was something that I somehow was in touch with in my youth. You know, if, if, you, if you think back to the first experience that you had as a child that you can remember of loss, it's, it's almost, I mean, for me, it's almost coextensive with all of my memories, right? It's as if as soon as we're conscious enough to be aware that we could lose something, we're aware that we have lost something. It's either some sense that things are not the way we thought they were with siblings or with parents. It might be that we remember moving and losing a friendship or someone close to us, family or friend dying. There is something about the experience of loss 
as being nearly coextensive with our conscious awareness as human beings. The question is what that sense of loss, what that nostalgia actually points us toward. Are the romantics right? Is it pointing us toward a childhood innocence, a sense of harmony with nature and with others and with ourselves that we've lost as we become self-conscious, conscious that others are looking at us, conscious that we're separated from what we desire? Or is it that if we could go back to that pre-loss experience of the world, we would be satisfied or would we be looking for something else? I want to um, read this passage from C.S. Lewis, where he thinks it's something else that we're looking for. And I think in that opening passage from Augustine, we can see that it's not simply a return to childhood innocence that we're after. This is from uh, an essay uh, of, um, uh, of C.S. Lewis called The Weight of Glory. I want to read, I want to read it and then pause at a couple points. Lewis calls this a desire for our far-off country. He says, in speaking of this desire for our own far-off country, which we find in ourselves even now, Lewis says, I feel a certain shyness in speaking of this. I am almost committing an indecency. I am trying to rip open the inconsolable secret in each one of you. The secret that hurts so much that you take revenge on it by calling it names like nostalgia and romanticism and adolescence. The secret also which pierces with such sweetness that when in very intimate conversation, the mention of it becomes imminent, we grow awkward and affect to laugh at ourselves. We don't want to admit that we have beneath all of our longings woven within each of our desires is this inexplicable longing for a far off country. And we call it nostalgia or romanticism. The secret we cannot hide and cannot tell. It seems absurd to admit that beneath and within all of our desires is this desire that we can't name for an object that we can't name. We are expressing, if we mention it, our deep vulnerability, our uncertainty, our ignorance. We cannot tell it because it is desire for something that has never actually appeared in our experience. We cannot hide it because our experience is constantly suggesting it. And we betray ourselves like lovers at the mention of a name. Our commonest expedient is to call it beauty and behave as if that had settled the matter. Wordsworth's expedient was to identify it with certain moments in his own past. We could just go back to childhood. We've got, as I mentioned, we've got lots of negative, violent, nihilistic uh, stories in our culture. When we have positive ones, they tend to be romantic. They tend to be about valorizing youth and innocence over experience and civilization. 
Lewis says all these attempts to identify it with moments in our past or with nostalgia, Lewis says all that's a cheat. If Wordsworth had gone back to those moments in the past, he would not have found the thing itself, but only the reminder of it. What he remembered would turn out itself to be a remembering. The books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trusted them. It was not in them. It only came through them. And what came through them was longing. These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, are good images of what we truly desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never yet visited. Thank you. Thank you very much, Professor Hibbs. That was a brilliant conclusion to this, to this series so far. Um, I will start with the first question. So I have a question that um, so somebody's asking if you agree with uh, a statement from Bishop Barron that that basically is saying that beauty is the key to evangelize our culture. Do you, do you agree with that perspective? So I was in New York when he gave that talk for First Things, and then it was published uh, in First Things. Um, uh, I, I think the way he presents it, I, I want to embrace it uh, completely because he's not suggesting that we simply do away with the true and the good, but that the appeal to beauty is, uh, is the, the way to, um, to evangelize, to, to, um, I, and, and I think that's, I think that's right. I mean, it's not as if, uh, he's saying, or that I would say that you don't appeal to the true or the good, or that you don't make arguments, but, um, the, there's this, um, uh, wonderful book called Disarming Beauty. Uh, and I think that, uh, that I love that title, I think that's right about the encounter with the beautiful, that um, that people can who might be um, indifferent to or even hostile to the truths of faith can encounter beauty in a way that disarms them and opens them up to an engagement at a deeper level. So, and let me give um, let me give a couple examples of this. I. I mentioned that I do some work on film, and uh, back when I was at Boston College, before I came to Baylor, I used to teach a course on film and philosophy, and now at least my wife and I here team teach a course on, capstone course on friendship, where we, um, in addition to novels and uh, philosophical texts, we use uh, film, and I frequently give talks where I use film clips. One of the things that is useful about this is that um, people can often look at a set of images, uh, a narrative presented on film, and it frees them up simply to look at and encounter the 
activity, the beauty of the images, and it is disarming and they can be engaged about matters that they otherwise might not uh, might not be interested in. I used clips, for example, from a film that's a very bleak film and that I wouldn't show the whole of uh, called The Ice Storm. Um, uh, stars Kevin Klein and Sigourney Weaver. And it's it's really about the chilling effects, after effects of the sexual revolution set in 1973 in New Canaan, Connecticut. New Canaan is is not just a real place, but symbolic of the, the new paradise uh, that's built up around the desire for material gain. I used this in, uh, in class, used some clips at one point. The students were all left numb by it, so much so that they were all quite silent. And I asked them, well, why does this, why do these clips affect you in this way? And one student said, well, you know, that, that could, this student was actually from that area of the country and said, those people could be me, or I could be those people someday. And so looking at the images can enable people to identify, literature can work this way too, another mode of the beautiful, uh, and can bring people into a kind of engagement with things where where if you were to give just an argument, they would have their defenses up. So I think that the beautiful is certainly a way of engaging for evangelization. It's also an enormous tool and resource for us as Catholics, because we have this great tradition of beauty in, in all of the arts and in our liturgy. Not that we want to turn the liturgy into an aesthetic experience, but there are aesthetic dimensions built into the liturgy. And so to the extent that we can show people this enormously rich tradition of beauty, we can draw them in in a way that might make them open to, what did I quote earlier, that the delight that we take in beauty expands the heart, expands our experience of delight expands the soul, makes it more receptive to what is true and what is good. So in, in those senses, I think that Bishop Barron is right on, uh, and he does a very good job of this in his social media work. Thank you very much, Professor. Uh, the next question is asking about whether you could elaborate a bit more on how beauty is a transcendental. And I would like to add on to the end of that, the question of is beauty a transcendental? I know that it, there's a bit of a question about whether you know, so different th uh, theologians consider, some do and some do not consider beauty a transcendental. So could you talk on your perspective on that matter and uh, explain? Right. Yeah. So, so the uh, a transcendental is, is that which is coextensive with all of being, right? That's one way to to talk about. That's a minimum requirement for a transcendental. So being true, good, uh, being is uh, is certainly a transcendental because all that is, is. Uh, and all everything that is can be said to be true. Everything that is can be said to be good insofar as it is. So beauty, everything can be said to be beautiful as well. But beauty seems, the reason you might be skeptical about beauty as a transcendental is uh, precisely for the reason I mentioned, there might be other reasons, but one of the reasons I've already mentioned, which is that when Thomas says that 
the beautiful and the good are the same in notion or definition or substance. They differ in reference, right? Whereas the good has reference to the will, the beautiful has reference to the intellect. It seems that with the beautiful, we've got something that's in a sense parasitic upon the other transcendentals, right? Uh, that is a uh, just a matter of encountering the good, which is a transcendental in a certain way, right? Not encountering it so much as an object of the will's desire, but encountering it as informing the intellect in a way that gives rest and delight to the intellect. So in it seems to me in that strict sense, I would hesitate to call beauty a transcendental. Um, in in a, a somewhat looser way, we could call beauty a transcendental. And, you know, Maritain at one point, I'm, I'm finishing a book on Maritain's aesthetics applied to 20 to some 20th century painters and poets. And it's it's partly a critical engagement with Maritain. I, I agree with him on lots of things and disagree with him on others. But Maritain at one point calls beauty the splendor of all the transcendentals. Uh, in in the sense that that in the sense that Thomas speaks of the beautiful as in a sense parasitic on the good, he wants to say that the beauty it, beautiful is the um, is the splendor, which is one of the marks of beauty of all of the transcendentals. Uh, that's a way of thinking about it. Uh, it's a way of saying that it's a kind of subordinate transcendental or or a dependent transcendental, which means strictly speaking, it wouldn't be a transcendental. Uh, thank you very much, Professor. The The next question is asking about how we might be able to transform the desire to possess beauty into an appreciation for beauty as a way to contemplate God. And uh, could you answer that with particular reference um, of wanting to possess desire as an act of, yeah, as a desire to be like physically beautiful or uh, and how that desire might become consuming in, in some way? Okay. Okay, that seems to me to be a two-part question. At least I'm going to respond to it as a two-part question. Um, the the first is how um, how desires for the beautiful uh, cannot just be to possess, but can lead us to God. And then the second one is about particularly about physical beauty. There, you know, there's this um, uh, there's this odd thing about beauty, which is also true of which is also uh, applies to the true, uh, and because the true and the beautiful are connected. Aquinas, in the, the nature of beauty, connects it to the nature of goodness in terms of the object. But in terms of how, uh, how our soul is disposed, the, the, um, uh, the disposition we have, the stature we have toward the, uh, toward the world, the true and the beautiful are similar, right? In the sense that in both of these, we rest in a kind of contemplative appreciation so that Aquinas thinks that when we reach something that's true, we rest in that. And when we encounter something that's beautiful, we rest in that. The, the difference is that in the true, we're using arguments to get to something, whereas the beautiful usually presents itself as a whole that we apprehend at once or through memory, if it's music or something, over time that we hold in our memory, beautiful passages in Augustine's Confessions about the way in which we hold the past in our memory so that we can appreciate uh, music or uh, beautiful objects that are involved temporality. 
So the interesting thing is that with both of them, we rest, but in neither case does any finite truth or any finite experience of beauty give us complete rest. So the experience of truth gives us rest, but it also makes us long for more truth, right? For how this, to see how this truth is connected with that truth, how all truths are ordered to some ultimate truth. Similarly with beauty, the encounter with the beautiful satisfies, it gives rest, but it doesn't completely satisfy all human desire for the beautiful. In fact, at some level, the encounter with beauty can pull on us the way that Lewis says, this, this secret in our souls, this aching in our souls, beauty can give us rest, but beauty can also arouse the desire for a complete beauty. Now, if we try, just as if we try to make truth my truth, right, and we become proud about the truths that we possess, or vainglorious about the truths that we possess, similarly with beauty, if we try to hold on to it and possess it and not let our desire be formed by it in a receptive way, in a, in a, in a stature of gratitude for the beautiful, then it will turn in, as Lewis says, to dumb idols, right? If we try to possess it. If I try to make the truth my truth, if I try to make the beautiful something that satisfies craven desires, to possess it, I ruin it. I destroy the encounter with truth. I destroy the encounter with the beautiful. So by allowing beauty itself to lead my soul, to expand my soul outward toward greater experiences of beauty, then any encounter with beauty ultimately points to God. With respect to physical beauty or the possession of beautiful things, you can say the possession of beautiful artwork, with, with physical beauty, there are more problems, right? Because uh, with physical beauty, and certainly we can appreciate physical beauty for the goodness that is inherent in it, but it's um, it, it, the, the grave temptation there is, because of the distorted state of our soul, is that we will want to possess the physical beauty of others, or that we will vainly want to glory in our own physical beauty. We are uh, creatures who are um, who are alienated to some extent. And social media again makes this worse, right? Because we can be thinking of the beautiful images of all the people we see on Facebook or Instagram or wherever we Snapchat, wherever we might be. We can think of beautiful images that we encounter, and we can become depressed that we don't have those beautiful lives that we don't are uh, that we don't look as beautiful as those people or we can want to then compete for more beautiful images of ourselves and our lives that we put on Instagram or Facebook hoping we'll get more likes than someone else or at least get some likes or some positive comments and this this really alienates us from ourselves and from God we are concerned there. We lead, as Pascal says, uh, we lead imaginary lives in the images that others have of us. So that we're always, as uh, as Eliot, T.S. Eliot puts it in Proofrock, we're always preparing a face to meet the faces that we meet, 
right? We're constantly constructing images of ourselves on social media and in our daily interactions with people that are false images of who we are. They're not who we are. And so we can become very easily alienated and trapped by an excessive focus on physical beauty and the presentation of ourselves as physically beautiful and of our lives as beautiful and attractive when we know that all of our lives, others and our own, are a mixture of the beautiful and the ugly, the virtuous and the sinful. And the, the problem with this presentation of ourselves to others is that we are falsifying the truth of the matter about our own souls. Thank you very much, Professor. Uh, do you have time for another one or two questions? Absolutely. Excellent. Okay, so the next one, uh, it says, people today seem to prefer talking about beauty as if it were something ultimately subjective, and that while this subjective experience may be caused by what's objective, beauty itself is not really real. So what changed in the history of ideas between the classical tradition uh, tradition's conception of beauty and how that differs from intellectual thought today? Okay, great question. Um, so if you go back to that very simple phrase of Aquinas, uh, the beautiful is that which pleases when seen, um, that that's, is connected to something that Aristotle says in the ethics and or can be connected and that Aquinas takes up, which is, uh, as a man is, so does the good appear to him. Right? So this is not, and Aristotle and Aquinas are not saying the good is subjective. They're saying as our desires are formed, the ways in which our desires are formed will determine to some extent what we take to be good and evil. Similarly with beauty, as our desires are formed, what we take to be beautiful will be determined by those antecedent desires, right? Because the good is what all desire. That doesn't mean that everything that is desired is truly good. although. In this whole tradition, the idea is that you can only choose the good. You're choosing what is at least an apparent good, what is good in some respect, although it could be a disordered good, right? Similarly, with the beautiful, that which pleases when seen is going to be determined to large extent by the antecedent desires that we have, right? So if you think of physical beauty, we have an enormous problem in our culture with addiction at all levels, and now it seems both genders, to, uh, to pornography, right? Well, how do you become addicted to pornography? Well, it's, it's complicated in each case, but it's your desires become formed in a certain way that this is what you take pleasure in. This is what you find to some extent beautiful, even if, as most people who develop these experiences know, that uh, as, as Shakespeare puts it in Romeo and Juliet, this is an experience that is loathsome in its own deliciousness, right? That there's a rot and a sense of guilt and a sense of horror uh, at the heart of the deliciousness, but there still is deliciousness or people would not go back. So there is a subjective element to our experience of beauty. It's also the case with the beautiful, this is true of the good as well, but it's even more true of the beautiful 
that we we cannot in advance say provide rules for what art is actually going to be beautiful right so we that is we can't have a a um a narrow and artificial notion of artistic realism if we had that we would have never gotten el greco right who distorts figures in all sorts of ways to present a transcendent truth uh we would never uh have gotten certain kinds of music that we couldn't have imagined at certain points beautiful music of contemporary musicians like arvo part or gorecki right if we had if we said only this can be beautiful we would have been proven false by the creativity of artists. Now we can say after the fact why this is beautiful and some something else is ugly. But there is a there is an open-endedness to the way in which beauty can be explored and respect that and uh and appreciated that reflects the infinite beauty of God. Still, as I said, after the fact, we can say, oh, here's why this is beautiful. We can give some sort of account of it. Now, there's an element, a legitimate disagreement so far as taste goes, right? Some people simply are not attracted to certain things that you could say are objectively beautiful. Now, if they're not attracted to anything that's objectively beautiful, there's something wrong, right? Or And, and this is where education comes in as well, right? How do we move from appreciating certain kinds of music popular music, you might say, to appreciating classical music? How do you move from appreciating uh, an ordinary TV show or popular movie to actually appreciating really good deep films? There, uh, There is an element here where we need to rely upon, to some extent, the judgment of people who know better than we do, right? who can help us to train our desires. But you know what? There's no real point. As long as we're open to that and we are expanding and deepening our appreciation of beauty in various genres of the arts, there's no real point in trying to say, I like something when I don't like it. Uh, If my tastes lead me not to prefer some type of music or some visual art that people I respect think is good, then I should I should be humble about that, but I shouldn't say, oh yeah, I love that if I don't, right? Because where we find beauty, if we follow that out, that will lead us to God. And as long as we're open to the way in which beauty can transform us, and we're open to being better educated about what's more and less beautiful. Thank you very much, Professor. Uh, on behalf of the entirety of the Sydney University Catholic Society and everybody present here tonight. Uh, I'd like to thank you once more for that uh, brilliant talk and for waking up so early for us, you know, the most heroic effort of all the speakers so far. Uh, I would like to also give one more thanks to the Thomistic Institute for collaborating with us and for organizing the speakers to speak over this series. And we are very excited at the prospect of future collaborations uh, with everybody. So thank you once more, Professor. Thank you all very much. I I really enjoyed uh, and I'm honored to be part of this and have enjoyed the question period especially. Thank you and best wishes on all your work. Thank you. Thank you very, very much, Professor.